Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. So open your Bibles or navigate on your uh, device to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. The topic, instead of justifying sex with prostitutes, Paul tells the believers in Corinth to flee sexual immorality. The title of our message, Flee, Fly, Go, Run. You're bought with the blood of the risen one. Thank you. Thank you very much. Father, (laughs) I'm sorry. I probably should quit. But anyway, Father, uh, thank you so much for this gathering of saints. We love to be together, Lord, in a place where you've promised to, to walk among us. We are the gathered temple of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that that would give us a special sensitivity to the Spirit today, that you would speak to us, minister to us your grace through this text. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Right now, poised at the edge of the galaxy, Emperor Zerg has been secretly building a weapon with the destructive capacity to annihilate an entire planet. I alone have the information that reveals his only weakness. You, my friend, are responsible for delaying my rendezvous with Star Command, to which Woody responded, you are a toy. (laughs) Buzz Lightyear believed he was a space ranger for Star Command stationed at the Gamma Quadrant Section 4 on a mission to stop evil Emperor Zerg, sworn enemy of the Galactic Alliance. He didn't know he was a toy that belonged to Andy. Believers in Corinth had something in common with Buzz. They didn't know, not fully really, who they belonged to. In verse 15, we'll read, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then in verse 19, we'll read, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Until now, in this letter, the Apostle Paul had been referring to the assembly of believers corporately as God's temple on the earth. When we are not together, we remain God's temple individually as each of us is indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. It is from that amazing truth that Paul challenged them to take another look at their habit of having sex with prostitutes. It's as if he were saying to them, you are a temple. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, do you believe your body is owner-occupied? And number two, do you behave knowing your body is owner-occupied? Let's take a look first at what we believe. Now, we're going to see this morning that the believers in Corinth were, as Paul put it, joined to harlots. That's in verse 16. So that's the specific problem. I'm going to assume that all of us here agree that sex with prostitutes is sexually immoral. I'm not even going to take a show of hands. The ushers are standing by for discipline, however. But anyway, the believers in Corinth thought visiting prostitutes was an area of Christian liberty. You have to remember they were from an extremely pagan background, prostitution, concubines, mistresses. All of this was perfectly normal in their society. There was no such thing as pornography in the sense that it was clandestine or something to be uh, hidden. And so this is how they came into the church as believers. And so they, defend, uh, they offered arguments to defend their behavior. Paul counters their arguments in verses 12 through 18. I want to begin with verses 19 and 20, because if we absorb what they teach, you'll never need a talking to like the believers in Corinth received. 
And plus, it's the real theological foundation for everything Paul is going to tell them. And so let's look at verse 19 and 20 first. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, I think a, a valuable way to go through these verses is to look at each phrase in more or less the chronological order they would be in from our earthly perspective. And so, first of all, we would see that we were bought at a price. It invokes thoughts of a slave market. And we're to think of the human race in our natural state as slaves to sin and to Satan. Before Disney became politically correct, in their classic ride, Pirates of the Caribbean, at the slave auction, the pirates would exclaim, we want the redhead. Remember that? It was National Pirate, Talk Like a Pirate Day the other day. Did you realize that? You guys get into it? Yeah. I keep up on this stuff to be a cool grandpa. The redhead is no longer for sale. The new redhead, uncreatively named Red, is now a strong female character on the ride, as if the entire ride isn't politically incorrect. <laughs> Drunken pirates pillaging a city. Hey, kids, grow up with that role model. Slaves have a purchase price. Our purchase price was the coming of God in human flesh in order to die on the cross. That's what it costs to buy a human slave. We are purchased out from sin and Satan by the blood of Jesus Christ. Being lifted up on that cross, Jesus said he would draw all men to himself. His sacrifice on the cross is therefore sufficient to save any and all. We also know that he is the savior of the world, especially those who believe. His death on the cross is effective to save any and all who believe. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, he died to save you, and, and it's effective when you believe that, repent of your sins, and trust Christ. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you have from God. Let's say you're here today and you're not a believer and you receive Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells you. He is a gift to every believer in Jesus Christ. Among other things, he is the guarantee of our future glorification. He doesn't come and go. He takes up permanent residence in you. And that's what I mean by owner-occupied. Your physical body becomes the earthly temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. It's one reason I, I object to certain, um, I don't want to misuse the terminology or be disparaging, but certain Pentecostal uh, areas of worship, because if you attend these services, you get the impression the Holy Spirit is somehow not there until something starts to happen, that he has to be invited to the meeting. And then things start to happen, some of them biblical, some of them not. And so we have the impression that he is some kind of a, a force that comes and goes whenever we um, earn or deserve him. And the truth is the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He is a person. A person indwells you, not a force. Your body is his temple. There's a famous and I, I would say very effective track called Christ's Heart, My Home. Have you ever read that? A lot of you have. Just pretend that you have. Uh, no, I don't want you to lie. I only lie. The thing is, uh, in that tract, it's really a good tract, but uh, they go room to room, the living room, the bedroom, the, you know, and, and make sure that all the rooms belong to Jesus, that he's the Lord of the heart. 
And then there's, I think there's a closet that the guy doesn't want the Lord to go in because he's got some stuff hidden in there. And, and so it's, it's good and it's effective as far as it goes. But the thing is, a temple suggests a lot more than a home. My heart isn't just the house where Jesus lives and kicks up his feet and watches TV with me. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, suggesting rest and worship and contemplation and study and sacrifice and prayer and separation, holiness, things like that, that may not really be the function of a house. Uh, a temple is something much greater in that sense. Then it goes on to say, you are not your own. You were bought for the purchase price to be indwelt by the Spirit in order to be enabled to perform God's will as his submissive slave. In his freedom speech in the Avengers, Loki tells a terrified crowd, is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. He was close to the truth because Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't think there's any Christian who would really give argument to the fact that having been bought out of slavery to sin and Satan, the best use of our body is to be a slave to Jesus Christ. We're not set free to be free to do anything we desire. Uh, look at the trouble that got us in. It is to be free to follow the Lord and to kneel to him. I can't wait to kneel before Jesus, can you? Uh, it's, it's really something that's going to be phenomenal. A blood-bought, spirit-filled, submissive temple slave will only always want to glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so when we look at verses 12 through 18, we'll see that the believers in Corinth thought they could glorify God in their spirit, no matter what they chose to do with their bodies. That's not true. The body and the spirit are both important in biblical Christianity. You are God's owner-occupied traveling temple. He sets you up, so to speak, everywhere you go. One of our worship choruses from the late 1980s captured this. You probably remember it, those of you who are old enough. Lord, prepare me a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. I would only add that by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are already prepared as God's sanctuary. You might get the impression that there is a work of sanctification where daily we are becoming more like Jesus, or at least that's the plan as we yield to him. But in terms of being the temple of the Holy Spirit, we're not really still under construction as a temple. The minute you become a Christian, he inhabits you and you are his temple. And so it's not a matter of, I'm, uh, you know, the, the, the foyer is done and the rest of it is, uh, you know, waiting. It's a matter of realization. And a lot of what we're encountering in this book can be summarized by be what you already are. Paul is telling them, this is what you are. And if you realize what you are, that's the argument he's going to make in a minute. If you realize that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit to give glory to God, there isn't a question about whether you're going to visit prostitutes. That, should, that will horrify you. It's not a matter of argumentation. So that's where he's headed. And so let's look at what he had to say to the Corinthians because they were engaging in this behavior. 
Verses 12 through 18, do you behave knowing your body is owner-occupied? The believers in Corinth were the temple of God, but because of their behavior, Paul saw them as a house of prostitution. I'll try to return to this, but let me get you thinking. You and I are the temple of God. What do others see us as? What building would they say you are? A stadium, a mall, a golf course, maybe a nightclub or a gymnasium. How about a coffee shop, Gene? Ooh, that stings. Keep that in mind. We'll return to it. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach, the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. If you talk to a believer at Corinth, you'd eventually hear three arguments that they were using to justify their behaviors. First, you'd read in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. In other words, I've been set free from the rules and regulations of the Mosaic law. Second, in verse 13, you'll read foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. In other words, my physical appetites were given to me by God to enjoy, so there's nothing wrong with satisfying them, and sex is a physical appetite. And then in verse 18, it says every sin that a man does is outside his body. In other words, since the real me is spiritual, what I do with my physical body cannot affect me spiritually. Armed with that mindset, the believers in Corinth, mostly from an immoral pagan background, justified all sorts of sinful behaviors. In these verses, we learn that they continued to visit prostitutes for sex. All things are lawful for me was the first argument you'd hear from a Christian. Today, Christians don't say that. They just say, I have liberty or that's my liberty. And so if they're doing something questionable or sometimes even sinful, they'll say, I, I have liberty to do that in Christ. Well, yes, you do have liberty in Christ. You're not under the law, but there is a but. Two, in fact, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. The word so translated means profitable, advantageous, or answering to purpose. I ought to ask myself if my so-called liberty will profit my walk with the Lord, if it is advantageous to my testimony before others and non-believers, and if it answers to the purpose for which I was saved, which is to glorify God. That's not legalism. If I want to do something that's in a gray area or questionable area, I think, well, ultimately I want to glorify God. And I want to grow in the Lord. So let's use that as a litmus test. Maybe I don't want to do that because it's not going to further my walk. Then they were saying, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any, Paul says. Too often what I might claim as a freedom in Christ begins to take hold of my life, dominate my life, have power over my life. Any number of Christians in our own fellowship could tell you that they kind of slipped back into some area of liberty that they once had, and it once again gripped their life. And it was harder the second time to get out of it than it was the first time because uh, the Lord needed to teach them uh, the struggle is real. And so, it, it, you know, you don't want to be brought under the power of these things. All things are lawful is further qualified by the understanding that anything inherently sinful cannot be a liberty. And in the case of the Corinthians, having sex with a prostitute was not a liberty by any stretch of the principle. Now, again, why would they think that? Because the surrounding culture thought that. Prostitution was, for lack of a better word, legal. 
and, and everybody was aware of it, and, and it was not a big deal. And so uh, they brought that into the church. Verse 13, foods for the stomach, the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods was a second argument. God made you with physical appetites and he has provided the means to satisfy those appetites, they would say. That's true, but it doesn't follow that we should always act or satisfy or indulge on our appetites. Uh, Paul says God will destroy both it, the stomach, and them, the foods. In other words, our current fleshly appetites will soon be left behind as we are resurrected or raptured. Why should we spend so much time, effort, and energy satisfying things that are temporary? Why not focus on the future and thus on spiritual appetites? Why not seek first the kingdom of God? As to this specific appetite the Corinthians were claiming was their liberty to satisfy sex, Paul pointed out that the body is not for sexual immorality. Period. End of argument. Sexual behaviors outside of the biblically defined marriage relationship are sin. So how does the Bible define our marriage? One biological male, one biological female, heterosexuals, and a monogamous marriage until death parts them. Now the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What sounds mystical is really very simple, and it makes sense since we started in verses 19 and 20. If my body is his temple, it is for the Lord to be used by him as he sees fit to edify believers and evangelize non-believers. And so that's how my body is for the Lord and he is for my body. Verse 14, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Jesus was raised from the dead in a real physical body and so will you either be raised up or raptured to have a real physical body. Thus, it stands to reason that what you do with your body now is of some consequence, or at the very least, you can't really separate the spirit and the body in terms of eternity because you're going to be both, spirit and body. And so this idea that what I do with my body doesn't mean anything, um, it does. When we get to chapter 15, we'll see that the believers in Corinth were downplaying the resurrection of Jesus. No longer mattered to them if he rose from the dead in a real body. Lots of uh, liberal Christians believe this today. Except that it does matter because if Jesus isn't risen in a real body, there is no Christianity. There's no salvation. Thankfully, he is risen indeed, as we read. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. The metaphor of the church is Jesus Christ's body on the earth is common in Paul's writings. He pictured Jesus in heaven, but able to accomplish more than ever on the earth because instead of having just one body in Israel, he would have millions of them around the globe. It's what the Lord meant when he told us that after he went to heaven, we would do greater works than he had done not greater in terms of uh, quality. How much greater work can you do than, than casting a thousand demons out of a person or raising the dead? But greater in quantity because we will be scattered all over the globe for centuries doing the work of the Lord. If I am in the body that Jesus is inhabiting by his spirit, and if I am having sex with a prostitute, Paul says it's like Jesus having sex with her. That's a shock, and it should be. Certainly not, Paul rightfully exclaimed. 
We sometimes suggest that if something is questionable, you ask yourself if you'd be comfortable taking Jesus along with you to it. But it might be better to ask if you would force Jesus to be participating in it with you since you are owner-occupied. We don't leave Jesus anywhere, and it's not just that he's omnipresent. It's that he occupies us by the Holy Spirit. And so what we do, he does. And so it's... It, it, this kind of thinking will elevate you to a better plateau of holiness, I think, realizing that you're doing it together. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh? Paul drew from the Genesis account of the first marriage to give us some insight about sexual intimacy. The goal of marriage is for two committed partners to become one flesh over the course of their monogamous relationship. Now, by flesh, it doesn't just mean the physical here. The original marriage was two becoming one physically and spiritually. Sexual intimacy was a component of a larger goal of two becoming one. It was a component designed to be enjoyed in marriage, never apart from marriage. If you join your body with a prostitute, you are doing outside of marriage something reserved for inside of marriage. Paul wasn't being mystical. He wasn't arguing that using your body to have sex with a prostitute was, uh, was some sort of a spiritual connection or that you became flesh in that moment. He's saying that it's a significant misuse of your body. Again, because it does matter what you do with your body. And by the way, regardless of the agenda our surrounding culture is bent on promoting, biblical marriage is the gold standard and everything else is sexual immorality. We're talking about having sex outside of marriage with prostitutes, but having sex outside of marriage with anyone is immoral. I don't know if you realize it or not, California legislature passed a resolution, it's not a law, but it's a resolution blaming religious leaders and groups that support sexual orientation change efforts and therapies for the suicides and the attempted suicides of those who identify as LGBT. And so this community of people who are struggling with their identity because we're so nasty, they're killing themselves. Uh, can't have anything to do with other issues. And so that's what the state is telling us. And they want us to change our approach to ministering to same-sex uh, couples and individuals. And um, it's a resolution now, it's not a law, but you, you can see where we're headed. We love people too much to follow that agenda. Jesus wants to save. Uh, and, and we don't... Our first look isn't at sexual orientation. It's at the heart. This is a person whom Jesus died for, just like you and I. And we want to bring them the gospel. And we let the gospel affect change. People, you didn't change to become a Christian and come into the church. God changed you. And that's what we need is for people to get saved. So our, we don't have an agenda other than to share Christ. By the way, number two. Having sex with someone doesn't mean you must marry them or that you are somehow married in God's eyes. Marriage may be recommended in some cases, but sex isn't marriage. Marriage is called in a couple of places in the Bible a covenant of companionship. It involves sex, but it involves a whole lot more as well. The argument then that having sex outside of marriage is for satisfying a physical appetite is false. Sex is more than a physical appetite. It is part of marriage as God intended it. And as an appetite, it is significantly different than eating. Nowhere does the Bible say eating should be confined to marriage. 
I mean, it sounds funny, but that God says you have sex in marriage. He doesn't say you have eating in marriage. You can only eat, you know, certain times of the year. There, there's really, it's, it's not restricted that way. It's a different type of appetite. And I might add, even with eating, there can be the sin of gluttony, right? I mean, it's not that eating, you can't just go eat everything you want. We were with a guy one time, I can't give you too many details or you'll guess who it was, but he's not from Hanford, not part of our church. He's traveling, he's in the ministry, he was traveling with another couple and at lunch, we took them to lunch and at lunch, he positioned himself between the two ladies. And then I thought it was odd that they were all looking at the menus together and deciding what they each were going to order. I thought it was odd until the food came and I realized they did that because he was going to eat most of their food as well as all of his food. And so throughout the lunch, this guy was just sucking down food like crazy. I thought he was going to eat me when he ran out. <laughs> you know in the cartoons how the, they have the, the balloon over the person's head and, and you look like a, a ham sandwich or something? I thought, <laughs> I gotta get out of here before I get eaten. And, um, I've never seen gluttony like that before. Crazy. I mean, you would think that he had been starving on a desert island. And this looked like it was a regular thing. So, well, if you saw him, it looked like it was a regular thing too. But anyway, <laughs> gluttony is a real thing. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Again, think of this in light of verses 19 and 20. As his temple, you are joined to the Lord and you are therefore one spirit with him. This idea of being joined and one spirit and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, it's, it's really hard to get a handle on. Uh, we think in terms of maybe like in the movies where a ghost comes and fills you, you know, and stuff, but it, it's not like that. And I don't know exactly how to explain it, but A.W. Tozer tries to illustrate it by using a sword being forged in a fire. The fire is a substance in and of itself the metal is a substance in and of itself, but when they meet together in the forge, the fire joins with the metal, making it stronger, becoming a part of it. And so in, in the real world, we can understand this kind of, of merging. And that's all that the scripture's saying. Paul placed the Lord in bed with you and the prostitute, or in our case, in front of our TV or movie screen or at the strip club or our computer monitor filled with pornography. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. He who commits sexual immorality against, uh, sins rather against his own body. Corinthians had this other argument. They said every sin that a man does is outside the body. They had convinced themselves that what they did uh, to or with their physical bodies, even if it might be characterized by some as sin, had no lasting effect on their spirit and thus was their liberty in Christ. Every sin that I do, it's outside my body, so who cares? Notice the sad progression in their thinking. By claiming all things are lawful without any qualifiers, they started to separate the physical from the spiritual. Then they started living carnally for the flesh, thinking that food is for the stomach and the stomach for foods. And it led to this terrible idea that even if something for someone else might be sin, it had no lasting effect and might be a liberty that they could enjoy. Not true, Paul said, sexual immorality is always sin and it's against your own body. And I've heard a lot of wild, uh, you know, d descriptions of this. And again, I, I think the simpler, the better. In Jesus Christ, your purpose is to glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, verse 20. 
And so the Corinthians were seeking to gratify their own body. They were doing it sinfully, thereby they could not glorify God's body. And so that's what I think he means, at least one of the things he means by it's against your own body. It's the opposite instead of what you want to do. You don't want to be gratifying your flesh. You want to be glorifying the Lord. It's as simple as that. And so the bottom line, flee sexual immorality. Flee is a strong word. One commentator wrote, the Bible does not tell you to amble, meander, lope, or trot from your sin. It tells you to flee. Fleeing involves effort. It involves straining. It involves speed. You flee when you need to find and experience safety from a threat. You flee when it's too dangerous to remain where you are, when standing still would put you in mortal peril. George Knight points out that Paul always uses flee in relation to particular sins. His concern then is to warn you about those sins that are especially attractive and deadly. There seem to be three of them. The one we're talking about here, sexual immorality. Then later in this letter, he'll say, flee from idolatry. That's chapter 10, verse 14. And over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he'll talk about the love of money and all kinds of evil and say, flee these things. And so if you reduce it down, it's materialism, idolatry, and sexual immorality. Those are Satan's three-peat against believers throughout history. You can count on him to come after you in the area of materialism, idolatry, and sexual immorality. These things work for him. They've been working for centuries. Uh, they trip up uh, believers all the time. Uh, while he's working on one area overtly, he's working on another secretly, uh, and, and we need to not play around with these sins. We shouldn't play around with sin at all, obviously, but some sins in these materialism, idolatry, sexual immorality, we need to turn tail and run as fast as we can whenever we identify these coming up in our lives. Using the world he is God over and with the help of principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness, Satan entices our unredeemed humanity to pursue these rather than to flee from them. They become goals instead of what they truly are, and that is gross. Now, earlier I suggested several buildings we might represent other than God's temple, and it wasn't meant as a rebuke. It's used as a rebuke sometimes. I mean, I could have done that. Uh, and I kind of did it to myself so that you wouldn't feel bad. But, you know, ministers like to get a, a reaction from people. And so they say, people see you as a coffee shop. Well, they see that on your Instagram feed, coffee, coffee, coffee. What's this new thing you bought, a sifter? What, what are you trying to, you know, you're going to be sifted in the end like chaff from the wheat if you don't start worshiping God. And the ushers come by for a second offering. And then we have people who are saved come and get saved again. And everybody thinks, oh, the Holy Spirit was outside until he heard that. And then he came in through the air conditioning system. And so it's not a rebuke. In fact, you should go to places like that. You know, I mean, you can't just stay home all the time. No television, no computer, no phone, no utilities. I've just described the prepper movement. But anyway, you, 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 you know, you, you go out, you do things, you're at places. You should go. The idea is that you are God's movable temple set up in those places. Let's say you go to the gym. I obviously don't, but maybe you do. People are at the gym, they're working out like they do, you know, and looking at their muscles or what are you looking at other people or, you know, they're working out. And then all of a sudden, whoa, where did that temple come from? Who are you? When did the temple of the Holy Spirit get here? 
or at work or any place you go, especially coffee shops. They really need the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. But I think you get it. That's the idea. It's, it's not that you're, you know, it could be that you're so identified with something else that the people don't even know you're a Christian. But the idea is that wherever you are, God sets you up as his temple. What does that mean? How do you uh, behave like God's owner-occupied temple in every place you find yourself? That's a good question to ask Jesus right now as we close.